Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. Delighted to say I'm here with Simon Carone, also known as the Uneducated Economist. He's a, a hobbyist economist, uh, also has a, a very successful YouTube channel. Um, so Simon, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Richard. I'm so happy to be here this morning. Yeah. Uh, and you're dr- joining us from your truck in Astoria, Oregon. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. This is actually I'm in my Toyota Corolla today. I have uh, I have an old '99 Toyota Corolla I bought for five hundred dollars. Runs like a runs like a champ. Love it. Gets great gas mileage. You know. So yeah, this is uh, a lot of people are like, man, why do you drive such an old car? You know. And I'm thinking, man, I paid as much for this car as some people pay for a tire. You know. <laughs> so. That's brilliant. And, you, and for those so, yeah. uh, and for those just listening, you've got your dice up, which are like become yeah. your, um, your, your, your sort of emblem emblem. Yeah. It was kind of funny. I had, um, a viewer actually send me these dice and I thought, Oh, that's cool. And I threw them up there and we were joking around about it. Well, then a lot of people started doing like numerology off of the numbers in the comment section and they were doing like their <laughs> stock picks and stuff and I couldn't take them down. I had to, I had to keep them up there and then they, they stuck. So now they're yeah. here. <laughs> yeah. Love it. Love them. Okay, so again, for people who've not not, not heard of, of you of the of the channel, you know, can can you fill them in a bit on your, your background and how you came to get to become yeah. interested in economics? Yeah, uh, it's kind of an interesting story, really. Um, I have no formal education. I'm not a banker. I didn't do financial advising or anything like that. Um, I work at a hardware store. I do retail sales, lumber for a living. But I have this incredible passion for studying economics. And I research two, three, four hours a day at times to try and understand what has taken place inside of the economy. Um, In November of 2017, I was babbling to one of my coworkers about, I don't know, like taper tantrum or something. And she looked at me and she says, listen, bro, you need to start a blog or a YouTube channel or something because nobody here understands anything that you're talking about and you're driving us crazy. And I was like, oh, okay, so I need to find an outlet. So I literally went down that day, fired up my camera, my cell phone. I had a, I had a used iPhone 6 that I bought for 100 bucks. I fired up the camera, did an introductory video to the uneducated economist, used the works Wi-Fi to upload the video to YouTube, and the uneducated economist was born from that day. I really had no intentions to do anything with this channel other than try and just find a place that I could, you know, start a conversation. And really nobody was ever watching the channel. Like I was like, okay, well, I'll just use it as like my own personal journal or something like that and just kind of record some of the things that I was thinking about and talking about. Well, I had a pretty good knowledge about lumber and I was doing lumber videos about every week, every other week, talking about building supplies. And when I started correlating that to the housing market, it really caught a lot of attention and my channel really started taking off after that. Well, by 2019, I was really into the lumber talk talking about mill curtailments and shutdowns and inventory depletions. And so when 2020 kicked in and we had the pandemic and lumber prices were running up to their all-time highs, my channel was right in the prime spot for for catching that kind of knowledge. And yeah, it just really took off from there. I'm up to 90,000 subscribers now. Yeah, it's just incredible. I mean, what a difference my life has, has changed from, you know? I mean, I went from this 
walking to work broke, super in debt. And now I'm trying to buy a house. I'm out of debt. You know, I have a lot of like things going for me now. So it's been quite the experience with this channel and just trying to come out here and talk about some of the things that I'm seeing, experiencing and talking about these things from a working class point of view really gives people who are not necessarily like in tune with what has taken place as far as like Fed funds rate and what's going on with interest rates and inflation. When they come to my channel, they can get a lot of this information and it's broken down in a way that, you know, anybody could really have a conversation about it. So. Yeah. And, and I think that's, what's great. And, and I can absolutely imagine, you know, it has a massive appeal to, you know, people with a working class background, but like, I've been through like university and that whole system. And I guess you've had an establishment career, you might say, but I, I don't feel like I've like a, a grasp on many of these like economic terms. And I feel like a lot of peers don't, you, you know, don't have that. It's, there's, um, you know, there's a lot of jargon involved and there's a, there's a lot of subtle concepts and, and unless people have, you know, gone out and got educated either formally or the way that you have, I think a lot of this just passes people by. Um, and I guess that's why you've got such an appeal. I, I'm guessing if you looked at your demographic, it's a lot of working class, but it's just a lot of people, you know, outside of that as well. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, you know, cause YouTube tells you what your demographics are, so you can mm. go to and see, and really it's, I, I don't know what the income level is. I'm assuming that it's probably, you know, fairly decent to all the way down to like working class, but it's definitely guys between 35 and 60 years old. And, mm. you know, that's, that's where, that's where it's at. I mean, it's because, you know, there's so much concern about what it is that you have to do with your life. And I'm finding that a lot more, um, female attention, like a lot more women are starting to like come to the channel and talk about what it is that they're doing with their personal finances is something that was typically seemed to be held in sort of like a male kind of role or something like that. But I'm finding a lot more females are very knowledgeable on, mm. you know, what has taken place and what's coming. I think it's because the knowledge is so accessible out there. I mean, I, my channel is a testament to that. So it's not like something that you, we actually did a video on this not too long ago. Those who study economics earn the most money. And in order to get like into economics, you have to really be geared and directed towards that. Otherwise, you're just going to you're just going to miss out on on all of it completely. And if you don't have a good understanding of economics, you're going to I mean, you. it's not saying you're going to. But the chances of you being very successful with making your own decisions with your money is going to be very unlikely. I mean, if you don't understand economics, it's it's you just you're probably not going to do well. So it, it's no, it's no surprise that so many people don't, don't function well with their money. Like they're constantly in debt. They're always wondering how it is that they're going to be able to make a particular bill or an emergency fund and stuff like that. Simply because they just don't study economics. They just don't know what's going on and therefore they can't prepare themselves for the conditions that, that they're in. Right. Right. And, and you talk there about like, where we're at now and what's coming. And I guess, how would you lay it out for people right now? Like, what, what do you see as being like the current landscape? And um, yeah, and how would you break it down in economic terms in terms of your current state of the world? Um, well, you know, a lot of this is all based off of what the Federal Reserve is doing with their Fed funds rate. They control pretty much everything 
when it comes to the direction of purchasing power, you know, when you think about it, when they ease the monetary system and they make loans a lot easier for people out there, everything flows really well. You know, everybody's really happy with things and it's just like everything just functions really like I wouldn't say correctly, but in a view of correctness, right? Because now you can go down with your credit card, you can buy stuff, you know, you can start busy, you can do all kinds of things because this credit is flowing. But the way I relate it to a lot is like getting drunk or getting high, you know, as long as it's flowing, you're good, right? I mean, but soon as the soon as it ends, like, okay, we're going to take it away now. And everybody has to start sobering up and you have to like, you know, deal with the effects of not having this, you know, alcohol-based consciousness, right? Now you have to deal with like a real consciousness and now you don't want to deal with reality because now reality says that you can't buy things like you used to or you can't go traveling wherever you want or all of a sudden, the you know, that medical thing that you need to take care of maybe has to, you know, be postponed because you just can't afford to pay for it or or you can't get the, the credit to deal with it or however it, it goes down. This pain that starts to set in from it. And now that's the experience that we're probably going to start going into as the Federal Reserve starts to tighten their monetary policies. And, and just, for, just, just, just if you don't mind, yeah. just because to, to, even the, even the oh, language, sorry, yeah. yeah that, so when you say yeah, they're going to tighten them, yeah, <laughs> their monetary policy, like what, what, what does that mean? Okay, so you have two two different types of policy. You got fiscal policy and you got monetary policy. And monetary policy is when the Federal Reserve pretty much adjusts their level of currency that's in the system and the interest rates that are attached to the cost of money. Fiscal policy is when the government goes and does like stimulus spending or infrastructure spending or you know changes something about the, the way the government is handled. That would be fiscal policy. So you got the government and the way they spend their money and you got the Federal Reserve and the cost of money and the interest rates that are attached to that and the level of, of, of currency that's within the system. So those are the two policies. Monetary policy used to be the major one. This is the one where the Federal Reserve during times of economic downturn, recessions, slowdowns, they would want to adjust adjust the Fed funds level down around 5%. Now the Fed funds level, that's one that's a lot of people are not quite understanding of itself that's a target rate it's as if the federal reserve wrote a number on the wall and said hey this is what we're shooting for guys okay this is this is this is the fed funds rate what they're actually trying to adjust is the effective funds rate or the overnight lending rate from the big banks now things have changed quite a bit over the last few years but to make that simple at the end of the day some banks some of these big banks like you know the jp morgan's goldman sachs these guys these big lending banks, some of them would have excess reserves. Some of them would be in need of reserves. The ones who had excess reserves would lend them to the ones who were in need of reserves until everybody had a balance sheet so they could start the business the next day. That overnight lending rate, that was the effective fund rate. That's the rate that the Federal Reserve was shooting for. And that's the basis of all lending from that point on. They would adjust that by pulling treasuries on and off these big banks by you know, buying and selling of them. Things have changed quite a bit. We got a repo. I'm, I'm sorry. What do you mean by treasuries exactly? Oh, tre U.S. Treasuries. Okay, U.S. Tre <laughs> Excuse me. U.S. Treasuries are bonds. These bonds are essentially a loan from by the government. So when you loan the government money, you are buying a bond from them. And now these bonds they can range from like very short, like what they refer to as notes or bills, which are like short term, you know, one month out to a year. 
and then they go out to out to 30 years. Those are the longer term bonds. And now these treasuries, this is this is like the asset of all assets out there. It is the quickest, easiest thing to liquidity, which is cash, right? So if you want to hold cash, but you want to gain a little bit of interest off of it, you would want to buy a treasury. The chances of you being able to quickly sell that treasury into the market is very easy because it's the most liquid market out there. So these big banks, ultimately, they want cash, but they want to gain a little bit of interest rate so they can hold treasuries on their balance sheet. Now, there's a lot of stuff that can come from from this issue within itself, but that's how the big banks kind of operate is by holding treasuries on their balance sheet. Federal Reserve buys these treasuries off their balance sheet. They adjust that to get the effective funds rate to the level that they want, which is the Fed funds rate. Now we got like repo markets and all kinds of stuff that are stepping in, which makes it even more complicated. But if you could kind of understand, that's how they they start the interest rates. And that's why interest rates from that point on start to increase is because those big banks on the overnight lending, well, now over on the repo end of things, but you know, this is how they get the basis started. So that's why the Fed is adjusting the Fed funds rate, is that if they can adjust the Fed funds rate from that point on, all interest rates are going to start moving from there. You can watch where interest rates are going to go by following the 10-year treasury, because that is like that is like the indicator of like all interest rates and lending and everything that goes on out there. If you follow the 10-year, you're probably going to see where interest rates are going to go. So if the 10-year goes up, most of the time you're going to find that your car loans, house loans, everything else is going to start increasing with it. If it goes down, same thing with the other way around. So, um, yeah, what was next? Yeah. I forgot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no. So, 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 so you, so you, so we, where we started was we, you started off talking about monetary policy and fiscal policy, and you made this distinction, right? And monetary policy, you know, this is this is about this is about the Fed and you know the the cost of money, and then fiscal is the government. Okay, so um, dropping of monetary policy, so the dropping of, of interest rates in order to stimulate the economy. Now, when interest rates were, or the Fed funds rate back in the early 80s were up around like, I have to get where they were, 10, 15% or something, it was, it was quite, a, quite high. Lowering of interest rates or dropping interest rates 5% was a very easy thing for the Federal Reserve to do. There was plenty of room for them to move. And when they could drop these interest rates around 5% on the Fed's funds rate, which have effectively hit the banking system, well, that would stimulate the economy. People all of a sudden were able to take out money a lot cheaper. They could go out and buy houses and cars and spend money on vacations and do stuff like that on their credit cards for a lot better price. And so this would stimulate the economy, get people out there spending. Well, since the great financial crisis, the Federal Reserve, the Fed funds rate hit zero, which they call the effective lower bound, which pretty much means that they can't drop it any further from here without going negative. And although there is like places in the world that have gone negative with their interest rates, there is no proof that it was actually very successful with it and that it had any kind of real long-term benefit to them, but actually may have caused more damage into the future than it is right now. But the Federal Reserve knows this. So they know that they were going to hit the effective lower bound of zero. And once they did, that stimulating the economy with dropping of interest rates was just no longer going to be an effective tool. They knew this. They knew it was going to happen. But they said that's okay because there's going to be plenty of room for the fiscal stimulus to come in there. And they wouldn't, they can't necessarily monetize the debt. That would be like against their charter. 
and monetizing the debt would be where the Federal Reserve prints up a bunch of money, goes straight to the Treasury and buys treasuries from the from the government. It, they don't do it like that. The government went into fiscal stimulus during the pandemic by spending a bunch of money. They issue out a lot of treasuries. The big banks, they're the primary dealers. They go to auction. They buy these treasuries. So when the treasuries are purchased, they are purchased by the market. The market is purchasing these things. The Federal Reserve then comes to the market and buys them from the primary dealers. So this is where the Federal Reserve is stepping in. It's not exactly monetizing the debt because they are going to the market and buying it. They are like a participant in the market, just like everybody else. But you know that if you are a primary dealer, you're one of these big banks and you know that you got a printing press buyer behind you who is willing to buy up as many treasuries as you're willing to buy yourself, then it gives you a lot of confidence to go to the to auction and buy up all these treasuries. And when you buy these treasuries, it creates a demand for them. And when the demand goes up, the price goes up and the yield goes down because yield works in exactly inversely to the price when it comes to these treasuries. So and, that's and, and just to and, and explain like yield okay. and yeah. So let's yeah, let's explain that one real quick because that one confuses a lot of people why the yield moves inversely to the price on a bond. Okay. Let's let's think about it really simply. If you if you could imagine back in the day, you would get a paper bond. And let's imagine like a 10-year paper bond that you had just received. On that paper bond would be a face value. We'll say it's like $100, okay? So in 10 years, this bond is going to be worth $100. You can go to the bank and get your $100 for the face value of the bond. But it also carries a 10% interest rate. So you purchase this bond that has a 10% interest rate in the face value. So you got the bond with the face value, and then down along the bottom, you'll have some coupons, these coupons will have the interest rate that applies to the face value of it. So if we say it's 10%, each coupon would be $10. So once a year, you'd be able to tear off a coupon and go and cash that coupon in and get your $10 for your bond. Once all the coupons have been you know, torn off and cashed in, the 10-year bond would then mature and you would be able to get your money back for the face value. Okay, so that's pretty much how the bond works. So let's say that I own this bond. I just purchased it. It still has all its coupons and everything. And I paid, you know, hundred dollars for this hundred dollar face value bond, right? It's going to pay 10% interest, but then somebody comes along and says, Hey, they're not really selling that many bonds. I couldn't get one. I'll give you $110 for that bond. Well, now the interest rate that the investor is going to get, although it's a 10% coupon that he's going to be able to tear off and get back at the end of the bond, he will have not gotten as much as that I'm going to get. Right. Because mm. I'm going to charge him one hundred and ten dollars for this bond. I paid one hundred bucks for it. So I made a profit off of the bond. He's going to actually lose a little bit of money if he holds on to it for maturity okay, because yeah. he's paid one hundred and ten dollars for it. So you see how the yield at the end of it has come down for him just a little bit. Yeah, effectively. He right. So he's not, for yeah, yeah. So now as he pays more and more for it, the yield continues to fall. Right. Even though it's a hundred dollar face value with 10 percent coupons, he may end up paying so much for that bond that even though he holds on to it till maturity and cashes in all the coupons, it still won't pay him enough for the price that he paid for it. That's when the bond goes negative, right? right. That's a negative bond. It still, it still holds a face value with a, with a positive interest rate to it, but the price that you paid for it so much that if you held on to it to maturity, you would, it would yield you a negative interest rate. Why would anybody do this? It doesn't make any sense. Well, if you have a buyer that is guaranteeing to buy these bonds, even if they have a negative interest rate to it, you can buy it for $110, even though it's gonna have a negative interest rate to it, 
the buyer might buy it for 112. You make a profit, right? They're willing to take on even more negative interest rate to it. And you can take on a profit for selling that bond. So instead of like holding on to it as an investor, thinking that I'm going to get an investment back from my bond, I'm holding on to it as a speculator because I'm speculating that the central banks are going to be buying these things up and I'll be able to sell it to the central bank for a profit. And that's how the bond ends up going negative. Right, right. And so and we're in a situation, so back to like, you know, look, where we're at right now is that the, the Fed, they, they're pretty much at, at zero, what their effective funds. We've got the, the, the fiscal policy, right? This government spending, um, you know, what, so where's, where's that at? We understand like the monetary policy is where it's at. So where's the fiscal policy at? So we can, if we kind of step it back to prior to the pandemic, the Federal yeah. Reserve was attempting to raise the interest rates up. They were trying to get their ammo back. They want that 5% interest rate. So during the next downturn, they would be able to drop their Fed funds rate and stimulate the economy again. But they know they're not going to be able to do it. They just know. Like if they start raising interest rates up, they start slowing the economy down. And last time, I think they got it to what, like 2.5% or something like that. Hmm. I can't exactly remember where they got the Fed funds, but everybody was getting mad. In fact, Trump was screaming at him. I don't know if like everybody remembers like during the Trump administration that he was just like wanting to fire Jerome Powell and that he should be lowering interest rates and he should be printing money and there's no inflation. I mean, he was screaming at Jerome Powell to to do exactly opposite of what he was doing. But Jerome Powell was trying to get that ammo back. I mean, that's what the federal like Jerome Powell is not the decision maker. He is the chairman of the FO of the Federal Reserve, which is the Federal Open Market Committee is the ones who make the decision. Jerome Powell just talks. He's just he's just like he's just a puppet of the of the FOMC. I mean, there's there's no like decision making within it. The FOMC is not going to say anything. But they will let Jerome Powell say it. Right. So Jerome right. Powell is the only one who speaks for the FOMC. That's why everybody kind of screams at him that they need to do something about it. But it's not him. It's the FOMC. It's the Federal Open Market Committee that does it. So. Anyway, all this stuff was taking place prior to the pandemic. But then all of a sudden, out of the blue, we get this pandemic that nobody was expecting. Right. And so they say, but I, I, I think differently of that. But nobody was expecting this thing. And now there's an emergency that needs to take place. And the Federal Reserve says, OK, we're going to go into these emergency lending powers. The, the government's going to go into emergency fiscal spending by stimulating with, you know, the payroll protection programs and the enhanced unemployment checks and all the stuff that they did to try and combat the global pandemic that was taking place, like this emergency warlike effort that that happened. That was the government stepping in with a bunch of spending. And the only way that they were able to really do that is by having the Federal Reserve drop interest rates to that lower bound of zero mm. and then go into massive quantitative easing where they were going to fill up their balance sheet with trillions of dollars worth of these U.S. treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. And mortgage-backed securities are very similar to like a bond, like a treasury bond, but they're backed by housing mortgages mm. as opposed to like the government taxing of people. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right. So, so that's... So this is where they're at now. So they're kind of they're out of ammo on the monetary side, and they've they've done obviously they've they've spent a lot already through the pandemic. Um, and I guess what are we facing now? Like, what's the what's the current scenario now as we emerge from the of the pandemic? Okay. So now it's the it's the pain, it's the hangover. 
It's the time to become fiscally responsible, to start paying off your debts, to start doing more for less. Um, this is the type of situation that we're going to be going into. A lot of it has to do with the ability for the Federal Reserve to get their interest rates back up to that. Uh, if they don't do this, it's going to collapse. Like uh, uh, All fiat currencies will eventually fail and, and go to zero. But if they can work it and go the opposite way and start increasing the interest rates, it's going to be very painful on the people. I mean, it's just going to there's just no way to, to look any other way about it. I mean, if you have to make more interest payment on your car, you're not going to be able to buy as much of a car or a car at all. And so this is going to be like slowing the economy down. People won't be able to sell as many cars. You won't be able to build as many cars. And this is the like the slowdown depression type thing that's going to be coming. How they were able to mastermind the ability to get everybody to retire during the pandemic so that there would be plenty of job openings during this next depression was beyond me that they could figure that out. I mean, I, I, I hate to say that it was all planned accordingly to this, but that was that was absolutely brilliant because now there's all these jobs out here and you can go into an economic slowdown and not have to worry about massive unemployment in the beginning of it. You only have to worry about it towards the end. So right now, with all these jobs available out there, the likelihood of having like a mass unemployment as they rise, raise the interest rates is probably not very likely in the in the earlier part of these days. I mean, you can just go get a job just about anywhere right now. Mm. And so that's where it comes down to is that they're trying to get that Fed funds rate up to a level in which that they can combat the next slowdown, the next recession. A lot of people say that they are causing the next recession, but it's more of like business cycle. It's like, you know, these things are cyclical. It's going to they're trying to they're trying to balance out the the peaks and valleys of a business cycle. But the more they do it, the more they kind of screw things up and it just makes it more more obscured and harder to deal with. And now you have things like with home prices so off the charts that the average person doesn't even have a chance to get one anymore. Mm because of all this monetary stimulus and excess money that they put into the system, it has to find a place to go to. And then it ends up going into these assets that you have to take out a loan for. And there's only a limited amount of amount of them out there. And so it's just, it just gets nuts like this. Um, once they turn the, turn the water off, once they turn those, turn the flow of like currency into the system, once they make that more difficult, make the cost of money go up, you're going to find things like, buying cars and houses, very difficult on the people and the prices of them are not going to continue to go up like they were. They are going to come down. But at the same time- with So how does that work then? It's going to be difficult for people, but the prices are going to come down? Explain that. It's, well, it's going, to be, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult for people to make the loan payment. Right. right? And so if you have least, less economic activity, like if you had a killer job out there, it doesn't matter where the loan goes, right? You can just make any payment out there. But if you're not selling the car- then you're not the salesman making killer money off the selling of that car. And this is the same effect that happens throughout the rest of the economy. You're also not going to be building a house. So therefore the guy down there at the lumber yard is not going to be making as much money either. And so this kind of continues It's the economic activity. So when you push currency or not currency, but more like credit into the system, what you're doing is you're pushing out the demand for, for purchasing of goods, right? You're pushing out there the availability of more transactions to take place because that's really where the economy is at. You can have, you know, $400 trillion printed out there, but if it's sitting in a bank not doing anything, it doesn't matter. It's only a matter of like what's being lent into the economy at the time. 
And so if that becomes difficult, then there's going to be less purchases, less purchases is less economic activity, that's less transactions, and that's going to slow the economy down, which means less people are going to be earning money. And that's yeah. that's how the prices are going to end up coming down, because now all the cars that are being built are not going to be sold because people aren't going to be earning as much money from the higher interest rates, and the cars are going to be too expensive to make the purchases with. This is how I see, the because this is what the Federal Reserve is asking for. They're trying to slow down the demand. They're trying to get the prices to come down again. And all of it is, in my opinion, all of this is like, it's not exact. I mean, it's it's real in the sense that they it does have an impact on the economy when they adjust these rates, but it came down more to a supply chain shock than it does with this monetary policy. So you have really two things going on. Everybody wants to focus in on the monetary policy, which is like a lot of it. I mean, it's a major part of it because this monetary policy and the lowering of interest rates stimulates the economy. Raising of interest rates will will dampen the economy. If you think about like what really happened in the severing of the supply chain, that's what really stopped the flow of goods coming into the country. The demand kicked in when you have all the stimulus checks coming in from the government. When that demand kicks in and starts wiping out the inventory, prices start shooting up. So if we had that steady flow of material continually coming in, like we didn't have the pandemic, even if we had the stimulus spending, I don't think we would have seen the inflation like we would have had they not severed the supply chain. By, by severing that supply chain, by stopping the flow of goods and services coming into the country, by telling everybody to stay home and start making a bunch of purchases and wiping out the inventory, that caused that inflation. That is what really drove the inflation way up. And this is something that they have been trying to get, this inflation of 2%, because they feel that this is like good for the economy. This is like the steady growth where people can, you know, I guess, feel good about their investments or something, where you have this steady increasing in, in, their, in their portfolios. So a 2% inflation supposedly is, is good by the Federal Reserve standards. But since the quantitative easing and all the money printing, they failed to reach that 2% inflation rate. They were like under it most of the time. So they decided that they were going to go for an average inflation rate. And they talked about this in November of 2018. There's an excellent speech, speech by John Williams. He's the uh, New York uh, Fed president. And it's a monetary policy for a low neutral rate world. If I remember right, I think that's the title of the of the of the speech. And this is an excellent one. I refer to this speech a lot. And in this speech, he talked about this scenario of being under that 2% inflation for the last decade and how they were going, or one of the possibilities that they could use going into the future was this average 2% inflation, where instead of going for a 2% target, where if they were above the 2%, they would adjust their monetary policy to bring the inflation down to 2%. If they were under it, they would you know, adjust it again mm. to bring it up to that 2% and try and hit that 2% target. They decided that they're going to change it to a 2% inflation average, which means over time. But they didn't give us an exact like how they're going to calculate this. They just said it's going to be like a 2% average rate. So it got me thinking. It was like, well, if you fail to get to 2% over the last 10 years, what are you going to do to try and get an average 2%? Because you're going to, I mean, even in the speech, they said they were going to let inflation run hot, like run extra long for an extended period of time, extra hot for an extended period of time to make up for this 2%. I thought back then, I'm like, how is it? You guys haven't been able to get your inflation rate up to this point, up to 2%, but yet now you're going to have an average inflation rate of 2% because you're going to have inflation over that too. How do you plan on doing that? A year later, boom, pandemic. And I'm like, 
And then all of a sudden, average inflation rates coming out as their new monetary policy and things like special purpose vehicles during the pandemic, which are unusual, only available during unusual and exigent circumstances were used to bail out just about every corner of the financial market, including the corporate debt market. So I was like, okay, this, this seemed a little too coordinated to me. Mm. Like it just seemed the pandemic was just, I'm not saying it was, it was just too easily used to fix a very big problem that the federal reserve had of too low of inflation expectations going into the future. And if there is an inflation expectation that is running hot right now, I think it would be pretty prevalent, you know, um, that's, that was their goal was to, they even said it was just like the fed's main problem is an inflation expectation that is running too low and too hot and that they are constantly running upstream against this inflation expectation of too low of an inflation expectation. So it was their problem. It was a major problem about a year before the pandemic kicked in. And right. now they don't have that problem anymore. It's all over. Right. right? They got a whole different set of problems. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and so, okay. And so where do you see inflation? You know, obviously we, the, this is, you know, big news in the States, you know, we've got high inflation here in the UK. Like, how do you see this playing out now? Well, um, I said something about, uh, I don't know, probably about three or four months ago. I said, you're going to see the inflation cap, cap out. You're going to start seeing the flow of goods coming into the, into the country. Right? This is really is what's going to stop the, the inflation from, from going much higher. At the exact same time, you're going to see mask mandates and vaccination mandates and all that stuff come to an end, or there's going to be less issues with it, or the mainstream media is probably not going to be talking nearly as much about it. And the Federal Reserve is going to be raising interest rates, and this is all probably going to take place at the end of March. I missed it by like two weeks, right? (laughs) So, I I mean, I called this out like three months ago. I knew this was going to happen. Like, if, if it was the severing of the supply chain, that was causing the inflation, then it was the ending of mask mandates and vaccinations that was going to get the supplies flowing through the system again in the, in the, in the proper fashion or in a more of a proper fashion, just, you know, easing, easing the uh, availability again. And I, I kind of knew something was up a long time ago when I heard the federal reserve talking about when the vaccinations come out, it's going to be making commerce more easy and stuff like that. And I'm like, you, you know, these bankers are not doctors. There is no Mm. way that they could possibly be making some kind of medical judgment on what it's going to do to the economy when they have no clue of what this medical treatment is even going to do. But yet they were saying once the vaccines come out, the economy is going to start rolling again. And I'm like, you guys don't know. this. like you guys Mm. are just completely making that up. And so I knew it was I knew there was something else going on here. So they're using the pandemic. They're using it so they could get the interest rates up, so they could get the inflation up, so they could keep from crashing the dollar. Because if they didn't do it, we were going to have to go into a negative interest rate. And from that point on, we were going to probably see the demise of the dollar happen very quickly as negative interest rates has a return of capital that goes negative and therefore slows the economy down. That's a whole other story, but anyway. Right. Right. But, but, but the rationale for having the, the inflation high and, and keeping it high for a period is that it, it allows them then to get their ammo back in terms of the interest rate up. Is that, yeah, is that the thesis here? Yeah. Yep. It yeah. strengthens the dollar up. It keeps the dollar uh, 
functioning. It keeps the dollar in desire. A lot of people keep calling the end of the dollar like it's going to like it's going to fail. It will. I mean, I have very little doubt in my mind that at some point it will fail. But at this point, I don't see it taking place. I see more people around the world trying to get their hands on dollars at this point than than they were a few years ago. I mean, it's and it's going to increase. The demand for dollars is going to is absolutely explode. And the main reason behind that is, and this is a little difficult to understand. Um, and Jeff Snyder does an excellent job of talking about the euro dollars and stuff like that. Who's Jeff Snyder? But, yeah, he, I mean, excellent guy does excellent work on it. Him and uh, and Brent Johnson, those two are like my. I mean, those guys are my heroes. Anyhow, um, so if you can imagine, like uh, right now, there's good examples of it, like with Russia, uh, China, uh, corporations like Evergrande, uh, places like Sri Lanka. All these countries are in high demand of dollars, and the main reason is is that they issued out bonds that are due in dollars. I mean, these are countries that have nothing to do with the United States. I mean, they are not involved. They are not doing business with the United States, nothing, right? I mean, they might be doing it, but that's not the reason why they have issued out this debt. They issued out the debt in U.S. dollars because they get the best interest rate for that. And so when you have a high demand for your bond because you're issuing them out in U.S. dollars, then you can find a bigger pool of buyers out there who are willing to buy those bonds. Why? Because they're going to get paid in U.S. dollars and everybody in the end wants U.S. dollars. Even like, you know, when they call like Bitcoin, like the criminal's currency or something like that, they don't want Bitcoin. They don't want gold. They want U.S. dollars. That's what everybody wants in the end. All the criminals, all the governments, all the people, everybody wants U.S. dollars. And, and by the, when it's all said and done. And so when you have these countries and these corporations all over the world who are in high demand of U.S. dollars in order to pay off their debts, and all of a sudden you got the Federal Reserve saying, we're going to start shrinking our pool of dollars that are available out there, they start going into what is like a liquidity issue, a liquidity crunch. They can't find the dollars out there to pay their debts, or they can't find the business out there, or they can't find the investors to give them their dollars, or they have to pay a higher interest rate in order to get those dollars to pay off their past, past debts. Russia came into a position in which that these sanctions locked up their dollars. They have like dollars sitting in an account. They're like, hey, pay the bondholders. The Russians were saying this because it's all done on the American SWIFT and everything else. So it's like mm. the United States controls everything when it comes to the flow of currency. And the Russians said, hey, pay the bondholders. You've got our money. Unfreeze the assets and pay them. And the United States is like, no, you pay with the dollars within your own nation. And now Russia didn't want to do that. Why? Because dollars are valuable. They want those dollars. No matter what they said in the past about how much they hated dollars and all that, they issued out debt in dollars and they wanted to hold on to their dollars. Why? Because they're super valuable. Now, countries all over the world like Russia, Sri Lanka is in the same sort of position, not like with sanctions and stuff, but they're just failing as an economy and they need these dollars in order to pay their debts, in order to buy goods and services around the world, in order to keep their country functioning. And you got corporations like Evergrande over in China, who's this major corporation of like building homes and buildings and stuff. When the interest rates start to go down and they can't make these payments and can't take out those dollars, all of a sudden the high demand for dollars starts to be created. Now, if you can imagine this growing by thousands or tens of thousands of corporations and countries and sovereign debt crisis all over the world, all in super high demand of dollars, well, that's going to make the dollar look really good for a short period of time 
because they are going to get out of that dollar. And once they do, then the dollar is going to be unfavored and they're going to find something else. And once they find something else, the dollar is going to crash very quickly after that. So mm-hmm. during the time, and this is going to be, I, I really predict this seeing this happen, that during this time of high demand for dollars, people are going to look at it and go, everybody should be saving in dollars. And that is the time that they should be getting out. But they won't think it. They're going to think that they should be saving in dollars during that time. And right. They, they, you know, just like right now, you should be getting into dollars and everybody's thinking they should be getting out because of the inflation. Well, well that's that, going to and, and there's a lot of people who say like it, with China and India and Russia, but trading between themselves and cutting the, the dollar out of the picture, that this is the beginning of the end for the, the hegemony of the dollar. But you're saying something, you know, quite different here. Yeah. Um, in, in the only thing like really, and these are all predictions, please like yeah. do your own research. You know, I don't do financial advising at all. Even go to my homepage on my channel and read it, like read the, read the about section. I am like, I'm broke. By the way, like I don't, I barely have any money myself. I dumped all my money trying to buy a house and I was like super in debt five years ago. So I am just now getting my, my stuff together. But this is the things that I see. And, and I truly feel this, like I am not making things up or trying to, to like sell you on something because I have nothing to sell. Um, but the only thing that would, I would feel that would change the course of this, because you think about it, even if India and Russia are doing deals with, within their own nation, okay, let's say that they are. What are you going to do with a bunch of rubles if you're India, besides buy mm-hmm. Russian stuff? Like who else in the world is going to take your ruble, right? right. Maybe China? Like, okay, so I mean, that might be a good deal because China makes a bunch of stuff. So you, you can do deals with Russia and you can do deals with China if you hold root. Like that, right. that would pretty much be it, right? And maybe some other country that might want to do deals with, 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 with China. So it's possible that, you know, that that could happen on a grander scale. But when it comes to having a reserve currency, like the world reserve currency, that is a very difficult position to be in. It is, it's something that they refer to down to Trippin's, Trippin's dilemma, right? And it's how do you supply the world with enough currency while maintaining your own domestic monetary policies? And here's what it essentially comes down to is that you have to have a couple of things. One of them is you have to have a debt market big enough to supply the world with treasuries, that liquid asset. And then you also have to be able to supply the world with currency. And now, how do you do that? Like, how is the easiest way to supply the world with currency other than loaning them money? Is to buy their stuff. So you have to be willing to take on an incredible deficit spending and hold a debt market that is outrageously huge. The United States is willing to do that. Why is beyond me. It's a very compromising position to be in, but we're willing to do it. And we've we benefit immensely for it. We have this huge, beautiful standard of living here in the United States. Mm. People tell me all the time, it's really hard to make it in the United States. No, it's not. And making it in the United States is very easy. It's hard to make it good, but it's really easy to make it. I mean, there mm. is, it doesn't take any special talents or skills or anything like that to do very well here in the United States, you know? And then there's so much opportunity here, like even just on the internet of selling selling stuff or making TikTok videos or doing whatever. There's so many opportunities out there. It's just unreal. So why people don't take more of an advantage of it is just, I think it's just because they just simply don't know. You know? Mm. Um, 
I kind of lost track of where I was going with that. Yeah, but. no. So we, we were talking about like where we're at and where we're going. And it sounds to me right. like you, you're, you're seeing that like a spike in inflation, but then it's going to come oh. down. And it sounds like you're also saying that you see, at least in oh, the short yeah. term, dollar doing fine. Yeah, um, I do. And now, like I was saying, like the only thing that would like change the course of like a lot of stuff is the central bank digital currency. That is the one like play that economists really haven't been able to use yet because we never really had this sort of, sort of like this sort of currency that not only is like it's it's a really amazing piece of technology when you really think about it like if you think about bitcoin and what it can do is really pretty incredible here you have the availability to transact with anybody around the world with nobody being able to stop you from doing that is pretty cool now, what else is cool about that is that if you are a good, you know, brainiac and can memorize the private key, then you can carry all your money around in your head. Cross borders, go to jail, have somebody steal all your stuff, your house burns down. You still have everything. It's locked up in your nugget. That is pretty cool. There's nothing else in the world that can do that, right? That's the only thing. Mm. Outside of that, now you have to rely on third parties. You have to rely on a banking system or you have to rely on a physical asset outside of the third party like gold or something. So that makes this cryptocurrency a very unique kind of new aspect to the economy. Now, if you can imagine like countries around the world taking on their own central bank digital currencies, their own private currencies or their own tokenizing of their commodities, well, then the whole game might change around a little bit where the U.S. dollar is no longer needed as a world reserve currency because now you can do instantaneous transactions through tech, you know, digital currencies. So I'm holding you know, my domestic sovereign central bank digital currency from you know, wherever, Germany, and I want to buy something in Japan. And when you make your transaction, you're using your central bank digital currency, but on the fly, it transacts over into their, you know, domestic currency and the tokenization of whatever commodity you're buying gets purchased. This could all happen like seamlessly without any intervention of governments or corporations or anything. It could all happen within the web and on, you know, on a digital ledger platform. That could actually make a lot of countries and laws and regulations pretty much irrelevant at some point. And that is not something that we have ever had in our life. I mean, so mm. that's a whole new concept. Unless that happens, then, yeah, we're going to, my original idea kind of still plays. <laughs> right. Okay. Right. And and so there's that, and there's that scenario where each country country creates its digital currency for its own central bank. I guess there's another thesis flying around that there will be a single right central cent, world central bank digital currency. Do you see that happening? Or yeah, yeah. Um, I think I think when it comes down to it, um, there is very little talk of a world world like a worldwide centralized digital like central bank digital currency i bet the imf comes up with something like an sdr mm. digital currency a basket of all the different currencies all the different digital currencies out there and bitcoin could be even in there with it i mean who knows once that has been accumulated and put together i think that world currency that's dominated mm. by groups of all these other currencies that are put together i i very much see that happening and 
being like a dominating, like kind of major reserve currency for all the major countries out there. Right. And do you have the fears that some have that that's going to give, you know, governments too much control, right? You know, you say the wrong thing on Twitter and we're going to shut down your wallet or, you know, do, do you share those fears or? Absolutely. You do. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That's the reason, that's the main reason why I even study a lot of this stuff is to protect myself from those kind of situations. I have a tendency to like, like some people tell me that I underreact a lot to this news. Like I don't think of it like a big deal, but you got to understand, like I've been studying this stuff for like 15 years and there was a time I was very depressed from, from reading a lot of this stuff. And I don't, I don't live that life anymore. Like I, I try to live a very positive, like right. happy, enjoying my life kind of thing. And people are like, Oh my gosh, the new world order is coming down. I'm like, yeah, it's tough. Huh? You know, and I was like, yeah, what are you doing about it? You know? And I mean, cause you know, what are you going to do? I mean, you're going to freak out every day. And then like, that's exactly, here's the thing. If that's the life that you live in, that's exactly where they want you to be. Right. Mm. They want you to be in fear. They want you to be scared. They want you to feel negative. They don't want you to feel anything that is going to be enlightening, positive, energetic, or unifying. Okay. So here's the thing. I'm not a crystal gripping hippie kind of thing, but every one of us feels energy, right? We all feel it. You walk into a room where everybody's having a good time and you feel that energy. You just, as soon as you walk in, you don't even have to talk to anybody. You just know it. Same thing if they're, everybody's mad or sad or something like that. You just know it when you walk in and you can feel that energy coming off of everybody. So everybody has that it within them, right? It's deep down inside. You have this energy. So when you are walking around with this fear or just like anger or something that is not necessarily like a positive feeling, but more of on the negative thought, then what that does, it's a, it's, it causes an instinctual thing to push that energy out to your extremities, right? Now it's in your feet, it's in your hands. It's in like, you're ready to fight or flight. You're not ready to like join in and hug. You're ready to swing and run, right? So this is the constant state that you will be in is this fight or flight, this negative energy, this, you know, pushed out to the outside. Okay. You wipe that away. You center yourself. You bring in the thoughts of positive, good energy. You bring in peace, love, happiness, and you center that energy to the middle and you bring in that negative or you take, get rid of the negative and bring in that positive. Then what happens pretty soon is that you start bringing positive things towards you. Everything that's positive starts getting attracted. People enjoy your energy, so they want to talk to you more. Next thing you know, you got better opportunities happening. So this is the life that you really want to be in. You don't want to be like in fear of the government that they're about ready to come down or whatever. You have to say, hey, I understand that they're doing these things, and I'm cool with it because I am protecting myself in many fashions, and I recognize what you're doing, and I'm not going to let you do it to me. Okay? Mm. So this is, this is the difference that I kind of feel. When I first started learning about this stuff, I was like literally like feeling of like somebody pushing their fist into my gut all day. Like that's the way I felt all the time. And it, I wasn't getting anywhere. Like I was failing. I was drunk all the time. I was deeply in debt. I didn't like, I had no ambition to do anything, you know? And I just thought, what's the point of it all? They're just going to come and take everything from you anyway, you know, kind of thought. Right. And, you know, once I got rid of all that, all of a sudden things that it, things changed. Right. So it's it right. really, everything is about like, everything is about the way you think. Um, there's an excellent piece out there by, uh, Earl Nightingale. Um, I just listened to it for the first time, like a month or two ago, and it's called the greatest secret out there. And it really has to do with your subconscious 
And what it is that's going on in your subconscious will create the reality within your world. So Mm. your subconscious doesn't know the difference between like imaginary and reality or anything. So whatever it is that you are thinking on a regular basis, your subconscious is going to pick that up and then start providing that light for you. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, really no, yeah, yeah, no, I no, no, that, no, no, I, I, I love that, and, and you know, I can put, I agree with everything you just said. I, I'm interested though. You sort of said, you know, once I got rid of that, you know, my life changed. Like, what were the steps, or like, how did that happen? Like, how did you go from you know drunk in debt, um, you know, feeling like you got a fist in your stomach to 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 the new place um, you're in? A couple of things had happened. Um, it was, it was right. I mean, you know, cause you hit like a rock bottom kind of thing, mm. you know, where it's just like, okay, I mean, this is, this, this is it. Like, I can't, I can't continue on doing this every, like every day. Like this is it. This, this is, you know, a lot of times it's like a particular event or something. I mean, I don't want to get too personal into it, but my wife and I, we drank a lot and, um, I was, I gave up a little differently. Like there's a, there's a lot of ways that you can give up drinking and the way I did, it was probably the worst way that you could go about giving up drinking. That was getting very angry and just quitting. Right. And then being angry at the world and being resentful and all the other stuff that comes from it. Because once you sober up, you're, you were living on an alcohol based consciousness. Now you are in a sober based consciousness and sobriety doesn't feel real good when you done screwed up your life. Right. Mm. So you know, now you're, now you're angry and resentful and you're, you know, and there's like all this stuff going on. When you take a program, when you go through like Alcoholics Anonymous, when you go through like a rehab, when you go through something like that, a major part of this is conditioning your brain, right. In order to deal with the resent with the therapy, right. You know, you got to have mental therapy to deal with this life of like screwing, you know, screwing your mind up. Now you're just going to go out there and walk the world. Good. Yeah. Good luck with that. Right. You know, and that's what I ended up doing. And so it was, it was hard for me to see even just like, like just function, like have friends and stuff. It was just like everything about it was hard. So, um, so anyway, uh, my wife, she went into, she went and did the rehab thing. Like she did 30 days when she came out of, I mean, she was a mess too, you know, and everybody really is right. We can always be working on this stuff. But she had a lot more tools to work through a lot of the issues that I was just sitting there trying to fight and deal with, you know. And so there was there was that part of it. Overcoming that gave you a whole different like outlook on life. It's like, holy moly, I was able to conquer this. Like, I mean, if you could get that up, let's think about what we can do. I mean, holy moly. Right. Mm. And so I was like, okay, well, I'm sober now. I'm like, okay, well my life is crap, right? I mean, I'm horribly in debt. I got broken down vehicles. I have nothing new in my life. My holes, like clothes are holes, like holes in everything. Like I got, like I got shit. Right. And so I'm like, okay, well, what do you do? You know, like, well, let's get out of debt. Right. I mean, there's like, I was listening to these investors and the guy says, if you are in debt, there's no better investment than to get out of debt because you would have to make an investment that would pay beyond the interest rate that you're making in debt payment. So if you are trying to invest, invest in paying off your debts first. And I was like, okay, well, that's easy. I've got a ton of that. So let's just pay off our debts. And I would literally like, you know, I would end up with like 20 bucks. Like I would have a $20 bill that I 
like, it was like, you know, I could go buy beer or do something, but I gave up drinking. So it was like, well, what do I do with 20 bucks? I would walk down to the bank and can you please put that on my credit card payment? You know, whatever, $20, $20,000 on, you know, and I put $20 onto my debt payment, you know, and that's the, that was the attitude that I took towards it. And so for years, like I would either stuff cash into an envelope or I would go down and make a credit card payment. And I did that for a long time. And like, life doesn't get better. Like I was sober for a long time, making these debt payments and like years went by two years. And like, you know, you got broken down cars and the tires need to be replaced or, you know, just like kids want to do something that you can't do. And like, I just, we just did that. And then one day I had $3,000 in cash that I had stuffed into an envelope. And I'm like, man, I'm $3,000 from being debt free. So I made a video. I actually have it on YouTube where I took those three envelopes. I had $1,000 in each envelope. I went down to the bank. I even recorded it, handed her the three grand. And I walked out of that bank debt free that day. And I had never, like since I was in my early 20s, have I ever been debt free? And I tell you, boom, the weight of the world just gone right i'm walking around like actually enjoying the sights that i see you know like i mean everything that i look at i'm appreciating and i'm standing in line like songs playing in my head and shit you know like i'm like all of a sudden like i feel good about everything that's going on and i still don't have nothing like at this point right i'm like i'm zero right (laughs) i'm like that's zero and i just feel so good and i'm like man, this is, this is, this is really it. And so, um, yeah, from that point on, I just like, I tried to save as much as I could try to, uh, provide experiences for my family that I wasn't able to do before, you know, like taking, taking them like just to go on like a trip to a vacation to go stay at an Airbnb somewhere. Mm -hmm. That is something that I've never done for my kids or done ever, you know? Boy asked if he wants to take Taekwondo lessons. Yeah, you bet. Like anything, like all of a sudden, like, you know, the things that I had always been like, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Now I, now I can do that, you know? And right. I mean, I could go buy a brand new car if I wanted to, but I, I mean, I want to drive a new car for like 10 minutes. Like that's, that's it. Like yeah. I, I need this thing to get me back and forth to work. The experiences that I can provide for my family now are so much more important to me. And the things that I could do as far as helping people out, especially with like the channel, you know, being able to uh, give shout outs to, to particular people um, and help them out. I mean, it's amazing what uh, what's come from all this. So, yeah, it's uh, it's been a life changing experience here over the last five years, like incredibly life changing. Yeah. 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 It sounds like it. Um, and it started with the giving up drink. It sounds like it was that hitting that rock bottom and making that choice. Is that is that the start of it? Um, well, during the drinking, because I I eventually failed to make house payments and I had a foreclosure. Right. So that's what really started spiraling me into debt. And then uh, during this foreclosure, the birth of my second son, and it's kind of funny how, like, my first son was an emergency C-section. I had no insurance. And the bill was just like outrageous. And I go to the hospital and I'm like, okay, hey, I, 
I, I mean, I have some money, you know, I, whatever, but we need to figure out some kind of payment plan or, or whatever. And they said, okay, well here, fill out this financial form or whatever. So I fill it all out with all my statement, you know, with all my stuff. And they said, okay, well you qualify for whatever. And they dropped the bill like 90%. Right. And I ended up walking out of there. Like I, I paid it. I just paid the bill. Like, are you serious? This is so awesome. And this, and I even asked them, I was just like, so where does money come from? And they're like, well, it's charity donations and all this other stuff that comes into it. And I'm like, man, this is, this is so amazing. I wasn't expecting this emergency C-section, whatever. So I was able to pay for, for this emergency birth, right. With no insurance and walked out of there free and clear. The second birth of my son, I was already kind of in bad shape. Like I said, I have this foreclosure kind of going on and I had insurance and everything went the way it was supposed to. And at the end of it, the hospital was like, okay, you owe us $6,700. And I'm like, I, are you kidding me? I have insurance. What do you mean? I owe you $6,700. I don't have $7,000, you know? And they're like, well, yeah, you know, that's your portion of it or whatever. And I'm like, my first son, just a few, you know, 10 years ago or whatever, was an emergency C-section. And I paid like less than half of that. And they were like, well, yeah, this is what it is. And so that is what like, like sparked off that on top of my credit card debt on top of, you know, some other stuff. And so it's just like, my gosh, what happened here? You know, like it was just like kind of one thing after the other. And once I, once that hit me, you know, and I was just like that deep in debt and losing the house and broken, I was just like, at that point, like you just get to, it, it was just like, what difference does it make? Like, you don't even mm. care anymore. It's like, somebody says, well, you owe me $250 for the water bill. It's like, okay, it's like, yeah, I'll put that right under there. You know? Right. <laughs> what but are you that- going to do? You know? <laughs> and so, and that's really what it came down to. It was just like, okay, this stop spending money on everything out there. Like, you know, like even buying one of these coffees now, like I have a hard time doing it, you know? like going down and buying just one of these. And I have to tell myself, it was just like, no, dude, it's okay. You can go down and buy a coffee. You're going to go down there and sit the Like I have to explain to myself that it's okay. You know, and it's mm. just like, a, like, man, that is not a condition you should be in, you know? So I have to like, I have to condition myself not to be in that condition. You know? <laughs> right. But I, I do think there's something in that. Cause one of, you know, one of the richest, you know, my sort of richest friends does have, the, will make that calculation, right? Like, you know, he's, he's, he's from, he's wealthy, but it, you know, I, I think I was in a, a press a manger with him once. I don't, don't know if you have that in the U S but basically like a food store in a, in an airport. And he's like making a choice. Like, do I, like, do I buy this like bar or not? Like, is, is, is this good value for money? Like he's, he's like analyzing the price. Is that really worth like two pounds or like three to three dollars? Would I buy that? Is it, you know, and he's like, he's making those kind of calculations, like for everything, all of this purchase. And, and I'm just like, do I want the bar? Or not? Okay. I'll eat it. Right. Like, so it's like, there's a consciousness there that I don't have, but it sounds like, you know, you have to a great degree than I have. And is that like part of your, you know, success in terms of getting out of debt and getting to where you're at? Yep. Absolutely. It is. Absolutely. It is. Um, many times there's been many times that I like when it comes to that bar, like I totally get where your, where your bro is coming from. Like I, I did the same thing. Like, you know, I would go to buy a bar and I'm thinking, you know what? Here in about an hour and a half, you are going to go and visit your wife and she's probably going to want to go out for lunch. So 
you just want that because you're kind of hungry right now and you just want to satisfy that. But if you just wait another hour and a half, although that would be kind of like a bummer, you know, but you can actually enjoy a bigger meal, you know, and, you know, be satisfied from that. So are you truly hungry? Like, are you hangry? Are you like really needing this? Or are you just kind of bored and want something to munch on? You know, and so I asked myself those kind of questions because if it comes down to no, dude, you're hungry, you need something to eat, you know, it was just like, okay, well, they go out and buy it. But if it's another thing, it was like, no, I'm just waiting, trying to kill an hour and a half. I wanted something to munch on. Well, then I might leave it alone, you know, kind of thing. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So I do, yeah, I do calculate those kind of things. Yeah. No, I, 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 that's something I'm picking up from the people I, you know, I've kind of encounter who've, who've had a, you know, sort of have some level of like financial wisdom. And it sounds like you, you know, you have that. Um, when it comes to the house, sorry, when it comes to the house, like, do you have like an absolute principle? I'm not going to go into that. Are you like waiting to save until you can buy one outright or are you like prepared to have a mortgage? Um, well, here's the, here's the unfortunate thing that took place. Cause in July of last year, of, of the, this last July, I was renting a big house for a really good price. And in Astoria, I was like, I was in it. Like I, I had it going on. You can rent a dinky little apartment, single bedroom apartment up here. And you'd be lucky if you're going to get it any cheaper than $1,800 a month. Like mm. it is expensive to live in Astoria. I don't know what happened. It wasn't this way 10 years ago. I mean, this really started taking place, especially the last five years, I would say. But the gentrification that has taken place here in Astoria is just incredible. Like the place is full of really nice, fancy, yuppie kind of cars and the working class kind of people who used to just be around are really getting pushed away, being replaced with like a lot more hospital uh, nurses, doctors, kind of remote workers from, you know, whatever people who have some money, because that seems to be what's, what's coming in here. So home prices were, were, going up quite fast, very quickly. And so it's July and my landlord comes to me and he says, bro, I don't know if you've been looking at these house prices, but I want to get out. You want to buy the home? And I'm like, oh man, no, because it's in a horrible location. It's a nice house, but the actual place where it's setting was right on this busy street. And there's no yard and I like chickens and ducks. And so I can't buy your house, man. You know, I just, I can't. And he's like, well, I'm going to sell it. And I'm shit. Okay. So now I got to move. Right. So he says, I'll give you 90 days. And I'm like, okay, no problem. I got this huge network here in Astoria. Right. I know a million people. There's no problem. I'll find a place to rent. Okay. And at this point, I've been saving quite a bit of money, right? I've been out of debt. And I'm, mm. you know, got the YouTube channel going on. Lumber prices are just sky high. So everybody's coming to my channel and is making pretty decent money, you know? And so I'm saving quite a bit. And I'm going to look for a place to rent. There's no places to rent, like nowhere. Right? And I had this idea. It's just like, okay, I want to be 100% assets, no liabilities, none. And I had no liabilities. I had 100% assets. I was making investments, buying Bitcoin, buying stocks, buying silver, saving cash. I mean, I was doing the things that I really felt that I was going to like be securing my life into the future. And buying a home at this point was not part of it. It was collecting assets. That's what I was, that's what I was going for. And so even making a rent payment was not a big deal to me because I was buying freedom. I was buying, I just, 
all I had was 30 days liability. That's it. That's not a big deal. And if, you know, you just deal with the 30 days and then, you know, it's gone, whatever. You gave your money to the landlord. So be it. I'm free. I don't have to worry about, you know, courts coming down and seizing all my stuff because I can't make a damn payment on my mortgage or whatever. And I lose my life and I have to start all over again and I'll be 60 years old with nothing. Right. So that was like, I wasn't even wanting to go towards a mortgage. I just wanted to keep collecting my assets. Hmm. Well, it didn't work out that way. And there was no place to rent. Like for three months, I could not find anywhere to rent in Astoria. You got to think this is the middle of the moratoriums. People weren't being evicted and they weren't even making their payments. And so like the people who were renting their places wanted extreme amount for it because like, you know, even if mm. you were able to get your tenant out now, you're going to have one in there that's done ruin the place mm. and the prices are up. And so it's just like, oh God, what do I do? So I was like, okay, I'm going to have to leave Astoria or I'm going to have to buy something. That's what it comes down to. And so I go to my mortgage lender, a guy I know, like, I mean, it's not like my mortgage lender, but I go to a mortgage lender, a guy I know, I know really well. I'm like, Greg, Hey man. Um, And so just to give him a shout out, if you're ever in Astoria looking to buy a place, looking for a mortgage, go see Greg Cross at, at, (laughs) at, uh, what is his name? I'll figure it out. But Greg Cross, um, mortgage lenders associates or something like that anyway so i go to greg i'm like greg bro what do i do he's just like okay give me your numbers how much you want i said well eh, we're in astoria so approve me for four hundred ninety nine thousand dollars if you can right and he was like okay so and i was thinking i just wanted something way up there so that anything that i find i wouldn't yeah. have to stress about right so um i give him my number you know i give him my my stuff. He comes back. He's like, dude, no problem. You got 800 credit score. Sarah's got the same thing. My wife, you guys are golden. Go get a house. And I'm like, okay. He was like, how much money you got? And I'm like, I got, you know, this much. He's like, oh yeah, you get, go get a house. I'm like, oh. And so like at this point now I have like, you know, 45 days before the 90 days are up, you know? So I'm like, I am like right at the edge here. So I go to the neighborhood that I want to buy. Like there was a particular area that I really wanted to be. Um, And so here's this house out there and it's expensive as hell, like way, way more than, than I even care to say, but it's way up there, but it's like, everything about it is just like kind of right. You know, I mean, it's, it's the right size. It's everything that I kind of wanted for a house. It's got this big, beautiful front yard and everything was just like kind of, kind of right about it you know for the most part but it's the first house i'm like looking right you know and so i'm looking at other houses just to even just go and and just walk through and i'm like these are not doing these other ones i'm like god we just ain't got time and i'm like all right here's an offer on this house and when i did the walkthrough on the house i noticed that it had kind of like this roof issue thing going and uh the real real estate agent um who was a I know everybody too. I want to like handpick right. my real estate agent, my lender, like everybody, like I know all these people, you know, from my community. And I'm like, Hey, you know, what about this roof issue? She goes, Oh, we'll deal with that. And I'm like, all right, <clears throat> I don't know how buy it. I haven't done this in so long. And so anyway, everything's going through good until it comes to this roof. Right. And they're like, okay, so they're going to give you like $800 on the roof or whatever. And I'm like, 800, no, you got to replace that whole side. You know, it's like $2,000, $20,000, you know? 
and they were like, Oh no, that's a rip. You know? And like, there's this huge, like, you know, issue taking place with this. And I'm like, I'm getting to the point where I'm really frustrated with this damn roof, you know? And I'm mm. like, I am not buying this. Cause by the way, I should guess I should give you a little bit of context. First house I bought, had a major roof issue. I had to replace okay. the roof line. So, like, I mean, I'm already kind of sensitive about the roof. What right? were you got in your subconscious that attracted dodgy yeah, roofs so to you your life? Subconscious, like, no, the roof, right? You know, so anyway. Um, <laughs> so anyway, uh, so I kind of, I'm, I'm pitching a bit about this roof. I get to the point of like, I'm not going to buy this house. You guys did not disclose, disclose this roof issue. I see it. I had the inspector out there. He said, cause I mean, I'm a construction guy, right? I knew exactly mm. what was going on as soon as I saw it. I mean, I just, I didn't even have to get up on the roof to see, see what the problem was. I had the inspector. I told him, I said, Hey man, when you do this home inspection, go up there and look at the flashing on this, take pictures of it and put it in your report, please. You know? And so yeah. we did that for you know, and so I brought that report. I'm like, no, it's both look right here. Yeah. So anyway, they gave me like, I don't know. I, I, it was like, it wasn't much. It was like five grand or something like they were going to do on the closing. And I was just like, at the end of it, I'm like, you know what? I'm probably end up paying for this anyway, whatever. Let's just finish this thing and, and move on. So here it is. It's about two weeks before we're supposed to close on this house. And my mortgage lender comes to me and it goes, bro, dude what the hell happened with that John Day house, right? This is the first house I had. Mm. And I'm like, I don't know, man. My life was all messed up, man. Fell apart. What? Foreclosure. I don't know what, dude. You know? And he was just like, you don't understand. That didn't show up on your credit report. And I'm like, what are you trying to say? And he goes, the underwriters found it. The loan that I had set up for you cannot have a foreclosure within the last five years. Dude, that foreclosure doesn't come off your books for another like four months. And I'm like, are you serious? It is like, I'm serious, man. I don't know what I'm going to do for you, but I do not have a loan to, to, for you right now. And I'm like, man, I put like all this money into escrow. I'm and he goes, I, I have to get back to you, bro. You know? And I'm like, Oh man. So because of that foreclosure and the way I handled it, because I handled it so poorly, Oregon's a non-recourse state. So as long and I'm not trying to give advice to anybody on this because this was absolutely the wrong way to go about it. And if I could go back, I would have done something differently because it created an issue that really ended up almost hurting me. But because Oregon's a non-recourse state, if you do not address your debt whatsoever, like don't make a payment on it, don't do anything about it for seven years, it comes off your books. There's no record of it on Right. So when it came to this house, I threw everything away. I didn't show up at the court. I didn't take the, I didn't answer a phone call. And then I threw every single envelope into the garbage. Didn't work out well. <laughs> don't, don't, don't do that. Like, I mean, don't, I, I did it. And, and then, anyway, that's what I did. And he was like, man, this is a bad, bad thing, bro. Because right now, I don't have a loan for you and this thing is going to close in two weeks. So the next day he comes to me and he's just like, okay, explain to me what happened in the John day. So I was like, okay, well, you know, let's see, it was right after the great financial crisis and I lost my job and then Sarah lost her job and she was pregnant. He was like, whoa, 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 wait, wait, back up right there. You had loss of employment. And I said, yeah. And Sarah got pregnant. I said, yeah. And then she had a hard time finding a job after that. And I was like, yeah, she's pregnant. And okay, whatever. Just put all that into a writing. He says, write it all out. Get the IRS statements that shows that you had a loss of income during that time. I think I might be able to use some, right? So I give him that information. He comes back to me and he says, okay, I found a loan for you. 
He says, you met the criteria for the extenuating circumstance of having a loss of income during that. So the foreclosure is no longer an issue for this particular loan, but the criterias are much higher. So now I needed to come up with about twice as much down payment as what I had. And what I had was already what I thought was a lot. And so when he said that I had to come up with twice the down payment, I went, oh, crap. Okay. Uh, I'll have to get back to you. So I go into my basement and I, I grab this box that I had been stuffing envelopes and putting it into a box. And I knew there was a lot, I knew there was thousands of dollars in there. It was like my emergency cash fund. I just didn't know how much. So I give that to my wife to, I said, here, count all that up. And I go online and I'm looking at every little like bank again, like my Venmo account, my PayPal account, my cash app. I'm looking at everywhere and like hundred, hundred dollars here, you know, 20, you know, whatever. Yeah, I'm just like sure. trying to pull every bit of cash that I got. And I call up my buddy. I'm like, Hey bro, is there any way that you would like loan me $5,000 and I'll give you silver and collateral. And he was like, yeah, absolutely. So I'm trying to secure all this, this money. Right. I didn't have to sell the silver or the Bitcoin or anything. I was able to come up with the money and I mean, and it was a lot. And when I finally like had the cashier's check and was going to the title company with it, I think I had like $350 left in my, in my savings account. Like I like took every dime I had except for that 300 bucks. Like I, that was all I had left. And I went down to the title company and gave them that and signed the deal on this house. And I tell you, it scared the hell out of me to do it. But considering that from the substantial down payment that they made me put on the house and the stupid amount of increase in value that the house has even seen in the last five months, I'm like, I got so much equity into this house at this point that like even a substantial downturn of like 10 or 20% would probably still not put me quite underwater on the, on the house. Like I, I would still like might be there. So I'm feeling pretty good about the position that I was able to land in on this house, but going into the future on it, I really think that there's going to be a much better opportunity to buy better houses than the one I got for the price that I got this one at. Um, I can already see it happening with the interest rates. I mean, we saw like when I, five months ago, interest rates were like, I got the mortgage rate at like three and a quarter. And now they're at like six, seven, five, you know, 6.75 on a mortgage. That same payment went from, you know, I think the same payment on the house is now up like $700 a month, you know? Mm. So, I wouldn't be able to do it at this point. Like I, I would be, I would be out of the game. And so like, I just don't see how this is going to be very sustain, sustainable going into the future. Yeah. Um, the only thing that concerns me about the prices going up and how far they can go up is that I look at places like Canada and New Zealand and see where the average price of a house is like a million dollars, you know, it goes in like here in the United States is 350,000. It, it says that there could be places that it could go, you know, it could go farther up. 
But considering like, you know, just some of the positionings that I see a lot of people are in and where interest rates are going and what's happening with a lot of the real estate and some of the less hotter markets out there, I don't think this is going to last much longer uh, as far as those increases, especially like, like what I'm seeing on my house, it just doesn't make sense. It's just too much. I mean, yeah. it goes up faster than I can earn money. Yeah. And like, I mean, the ha- like that, that doesn't make sense. Like the house value goes up faster than I can actually earn income. Like the, the income, I, if I could take the equity out of the house, it'd be worth more than going to work. Right. I mean, which is, which reminds me of my, my, my dad, right? My father, he, he made more in the appreciation on, on his house over his lifetime than he did in, in any one year in salary. Right. And he was an engineer. Like he wasn't like he was a poorly paid person. Right. Yeah. Um, those type of things. I just, it's, it's unrealistic and things like that. Just, they're not going to last. It's not going to last forever. Now, I don't know how far it could go. Um, and, but I can't imagine it going much farther from here with the federal reserve doing what they are with the interest rates. Uh, watching the the payments going up as far as they are. Um, There is a lot of concern when it comes to the availability of homes out there. Inventory levels are really low. There's a lot of institutional buyers out there and they're all cash buyers. Uh, From what I understand, somewhere around 30% of all homes sold in the United States go to all cash buyers. They don't really care where interest rates go. So if 30% are buying all cash at this price, it, it doesn't, doesn't leave a whole lot of room for, for interest rates to cause a downturn. You, you see what mm, I'm saying? It's, mm. it's like, you know, that's only, that's only representing a little over half of the buyers. <laughs> yeah. 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 I see. Yeah. So, so, so the way you see it is, I, I suppose the other thing is, how far do you think interest rates? Because all right, so you're not you're not saying that you think there's going to be some you know huge collapse. Presumably, otherwise you wouldn't have bought the house. But what about on the interest rate side? Do you think that yeah. there's kind of only so far they'll go with the interest rates, or could it be up to like fifteen twenty percent? Is that foreseeable? Um, if we go to fifteen twenty percent on on mortgage rates, we'll probably see a substantial crap. Um, right, and and I I. I I wouldn't say that I didn't see a crash coming and that's, or else I wouldn't have bought the house. I bought the house because I really felt like I had no other choice. Right. It was either that or I had to leave, leave my hometown. I had to start a whole new network, new jobs, new schools, new everything. And to me, I had the availability or the capabilities of staying. This is what my family wanted. Mm. I wanted to be here. So I really felt like it was like no other choice, but to, to mm. have to buy this house. Uh, being in that circumstance that I was, um, being able to put the substantial down payment that I was onto the house, I, it made me feel better about the position that I'm in on it. So if we do have a major downturn, I don't think I will go too far underwater with it. Mm-hmm. It could. I mean, I'm kind of ready for that. I was mentally kind of dealing with that. And it was like one of the hardest things, like trying to like just come to terms with, it was just like, okay, dude, if this thing is only worth half of what you paid for it, you're going to be ready for that. Right. You know? Mm. And, and so that's kind of one of the things that I had thought about. Um, as far as like, I'm sorry, what was the question? If we well, were- I guess, I guess, I guess the, I guess what I'm, I'm rationalizing, like the first, you know, you, you spoke about like the fact there's a, a yeah. reasonable chance, like the, you know, the fed want to get their ammo back, right. They, they, oh, you right. know, you know, maybe they're pushing, you know, maybe they're, they're part of inflation get it, or at some level, you know, they're using this situation to push inflation up so they can get their ammo back. 
and ultimately, you know, this might mean that we end up with a with a downturn in in housing, yeah, in the economy. Um, and that's and that's really where like a lot of this, a lot of the inflation is is expectation. It's not it's because because inflation expectation drives inflation. If you feel that you are going to have higher prices going into the future, that will encourage you to go out there and buy say twice as what you need so that you are have it, you know, on hand for when the prices do increase. Or that if you feel like the availability of it is not going to be there, that might get you out there buying it ahead of time and paying a higher price for it as well. Because of this fear of inflation that's coming, that will force people to go out there and behave in a fashion that will drive inflation to go higher by making those extra purchases or buying something ahead of time before they really want to or paying a higher price for it because they feel that it's going to go up into the future. That's, that's the inflation expectation that the Federal Reserve was look, really looking for. So if you can reverse that inflation ex- expectation, right, if you can make that something different and people are no longer in fear of higher, higher inflation coming, then you can reverse the effects of the inflation So because everything is about inflation expectation. If you were to get interest rates or mortgage rates all the way up to like 15 or 20 percent, the the amount of payment that an individual would have to make on like even say the average house would be far more than what their income would be. And therefore it just couldn't exist. It just it just can't happen that way. So interest rates will most likely not achieve a 15 to 20 percent unless the house prices were like fifty thousand dollars you know that's the only way it could really really achieve that sort of level um i can't imagine anybody selling their homes for fifty thousand dollars you know even like i mean i guess there's some places out there in the world they might do it but the average home of three hundred fifty thousand dollars i can't imagine dropping all the way down to 50 grand and not having people buying it with cash before that got there so there's going to re- reach a certain floor that it's just going to meet where people are just going to start pouring into it. So it just won't go down that far. The Federal Reserve is going to push the idea as high as they can. Like if they could get people to think that there's going to be 20% mortgage rates or something, and I think they would be just fine with that. Like I think they're just totally cool because the, the market's only going to go so far before, you know, like – it doesn't matter what you think. It's only going to go. It's it's only going to make it to a certain level. Like it can only houses can't go to 50. They can only go to a certain part where, you know, it doesn't matter what you do. They're just going to start selling at this part and interest rates could be 20% or 25 or 30%. And still, this is it. This is where it's going to get to. So the federal reserve can say whatever they want. Their fed funds rate, it's eventually going to hit something called neutral rate where they are no longer accommodating nor uh, stimulating or uh, what am I trying to say? Uh, Restricting the economy. They're at neutral. And a lot of people say that neutral rate is somewhere around two and a half percent, something like two and a half to three. But from some of the speeches that I have read, that neutral rate has dropped dramatically. It's somewhere between zero and one and a half percent. They don't know exactly where it is. And so we're almost to neutral right now. Right? We have mm-hmm. a little bit of interest rates that we could go on the Fed funds. They can increase it a little bit more. But I have a feeling that we're about ready to hit neutral as it is, where the Federal Reserve and their monetary policy is no longer accommodating or stimulating the economy. Right now, it's still is stimulating the economy. A lot of people think they're restricting it, 
but they're not. They're still under that neutral rate. So it's mm. still a stimulation to the economy. So once we get that 1.75, that one and a half, two percent interest on the Fed funds rate, I'm going to feel that that's probably the neutral rate. Although they're going to keep saying neutral is going to be higher than that, they're going to keep pushing that inflation X or that higher interest rate expectation, trying to drive down the inflation expectation. Even though at that point they're going to be like neutral to the economy, mm. if they continue on from that, they are really trying to to push down the economy. So that's really where I feel that if you're going to want to try and find where what's going to happen with pretty much everything, but if you're like just focusing in on real estate, once the Fed hits one and a half percent on their Fed funds level, I think that's going to be the turning. I think that right there will be. If they continue on from there, you're going to see house prices drop and you're going to start seeing downturn into the economies and stuff like that. Um, I don't know. We, we, we may not even see them get there. Right. It might be like, who knows, like there could be some other thing, you know, bigger war breakout, something like that, that would just force them to not go any further, you know, and that they would be stuck. And that would make a lot of sense since that's the neutral rate, you know? Yeah. 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 Got it. But but they don't want to tell anybody that, right? They want people to believe neutral rates at like two and a half percent or something. And they still put that media out there, but just go and check out that speech from John Williams that monetary policy for a low neutral rate world, November of 2018. He says it right in there that it used to be two and a half percent. We now feel that it's at one and a half, you know? Right, right, right. Right. Okay. Um, wow. This, this has been such a, you, you like know, talking to me, huh, man? yeah, this has been fun. This has been fun. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I love how we've gone from, you know, all over the place economic policy to like personal stories yeah oh man Um, i am a babbler you'll find that my mind just bounces all over the place (laughs) yeah yeah no i love it but you are so positive you know i do just get this this positive vibe from you just um thank you um, as we close out i've got to go collect my kids soon i've got kids as well yeah um just just like what what are you you know what's your regime right now because i am struck by like this you know, I can feel it in you, right? This turnaround to like this more positive orientation, like what's, what keeps you in that state, like on a day-to-day basis? Um, I, I, I don't know. Um, you know, I come out here and I, I put it out there a lot with this positive energy, but you know, everybody has issues, you know, Mm. we all have our issues. So, you know, um, I don't bounce around every single day of my life, like just exuding this positive, you know, like every, like the shining light of like, like, you know, awesomeness and hope that comes from me or something. Um, you know, I mean, I have my down times, right. And that's probably where you're challenged the most is so mm-hmm. like when you're, when you're feeling down, you can exude that out to the rest of the people. Like, Hey man, I feel down and I'm going to show it. Well, you're not going to, you're not going to get a good response from them. Right. So you know, when I feel myself getting down, when I feel like, you know, something didn't go right or a plan that I had, you know, fell apart or something like that. And it hurts, you know, and I'm like, man, I, you know, like all this work that I put into this is all of a sudden not there. You know, I, I have to think to myself, okay, it was just like, what did you learn from these situations? You know, what is it that you're going to, you know, why did this happen in such fashions? And what is it that is going to be a positive reaction from this? Like, you know, every single day you have to, you have to wake up and you think, okay, well, 
why aren't you feeling good today? It's just like, I don't know. I just feel down. I don't feel like very motivated. Well, then go do as many pushups as you can do. Right. So that's what I do. Right. I mean, if mm. I'm feeling like I just don't feel energetic, well, how many pushups can you get done? Right. Mm. So I get down and, you know, maybe one day I can only do 25, but then one day I do 40, you know, and I jump up and I'm like, whoa, man, 40, 40 pushups, man. You know, I was like, I haven't been able to do that before, you know, or something. And you feel good about that, right? All it took was just doing a handful of pushups in the morning to change the way you feel. So it's recognizing, recognizing that everything, there's things in the world that you're just not going to be able to control. Recognize that you can't control that. Accept it for what it is and then move on and, and try and do things that you can find that are going to be more meaningful and, and purposeful in your life. Like if, like that's something that somebody asked me, I was just like, man, what if I, I don't feel like I have anything going on in my life. And it's just like, go volunteer, go volunteer somewhere for something, you know, just something really simple. Like, even if it's like volunteering at, you know, a County event and just taking care of the garbages, you know, like just emptying out the garbage or something. It gives you some kind of purpose in your life. You feel good about it. It's like you meant, you know, like all these people get to enjoy not having garbage laying everywhere from the things that I did. You know, that's although it's something very small, it, it is like it's encouraging with your life. And again, that starts landing into your subconscious. Once that lands into your subconscious, then your subconscious starts bringing you more things that are meaningful and purposeful in your life. And it just starts happening just naturally. You don't even have to like really think about it because it's just the way you think anyway so mm. yeah you know, no, got um, it. it's not it's it's not a secret and it's not a trick but it is something that you do have to believe and having faith in something that is kind of magical isn't isn't easy to do and so mm. that's probably where a lot of people end up like falling short is that they just give up hope and faith and, and belief. And that's, that's really where it comes down to is that's why like religions work so well, you know, it's because they have faith and belief and hope and, and that's what it takes, you know, in order for, for these things to, to, to bring like the true benefit of what life has to offer to you. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. That leap of faith. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Wow. Well, thank you so much yeah, <laughs> for sharing your morning with me from your from your truck um yeah. i've really enjoyed it it's um yeah it's uh, yeah it's a, and you've sharpened up my understanding of some economic concepts which i kind of thought i understood but you've made it clearer so i really appreciate that yeah well thank you man and thank you i you know i try like you know i always found you know i find like economics like you were saying earlier is really difficult to understand especially when it comes to some of the the jargon the lingo the way they state things and um once you kind of break through that once you kind of you know learn that language a little bit this stuff really isn't that hard it's it's mm. it's difficult there's a lot of working pieces to it so there's a lot to understand but it's not like it's not so like I'm not, I'm barely a high school graduate. Like I can hardly, like, I can't, I shouldn't say I can't, I don't read very well. I read like 10 minutes and then my mind is gone. So I have a reading disability. I mean, so like, I'm already kind of like in an, in an arena that I shouldn't be in talking economics and stuff. But once I kind of got a grasp for it and I realized, man, this is really important stuff for everybody to know. And then if you are a working class person, 
who has like a job at like a factory or at a store or at a restaurant or even like that, your like if you have a view of the economy, your your view of the economy is so much sharper and faster and quicker than any of these financial guys have because they're waiting for the data that you're living. You mm-hmm. got to think about that. Like that's one of the reasons why my channel does so well is because I've taken in this economic knowledge and then applied it to the lumber industry and the things that I'm experiencing within my sales. Like I have first access to the information that is being created. By the time it gets to data, it's already too late. I've already, you know, I've already talked about kind of. Yeah. Yeah. So this is where like, I feel like, you know, everybody should be really studying it on the stuff because really you're, you have the information, you're smarter than the financial guys are you know, cause you're living, you're living the stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, thanks once again. And we should, we you're should shout out to your, to your website, right? Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. yeah. So uneducatedeconomist.com. You've got the merch mm-hmm. there, your blog, um, anything else you want to like shout out for people who want to get more of what you're doing? Um, pretty much. I'm just active on YouTube. Um, I do have the website. Um, I'm on all the social medias as well. Uh, if you want to send me an email, uneducatedeconomist at gmail.com. Uh, I am sorry. I have not been like on my emails as much as like I should be lately. I've been a little preoccupied, but I do try to get back to everybody on the emails. Um, but yeah, you can send me an email there. Um, but other than that, I'm pretty much active on YouTube. That's, that's yeah. where I do most of my comments and stuff. Brilliant. Excellent. Well, thanks once again. It's been awesome. Um, I'll uh, let you enjoy the rest of your day. Um, Yeah, that's been great. Thanks. Thank you. Cheers. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.